Morning. How's everybody doing? All right, okay. Uh, I'm doing good. Found out I'm having a granddaughter. I knew I was having a grandchild. I found out now it's going to be another granddaughter. Three, three boys, two girls. Just one more girl, and we'll have that perfect balance. Anyway, since the girls are all in Missouri and the boys are in Redlands, I'm wondering if they could might do a swap so I could have a girl around me. I suggested that. They, they're not going for it. Anyway, welcome to Bridges. Uh, we sing, you know, the songs today and practically all the time. They're very positive, right, wouldn't you say? About, you know, the mercies of God and all that. But, but underlying that is because uh, life is not easy, right? We're praising God in the midst of difficulties often. That's certainly true in the scripture. Have you ever thought about the difficulties, both great and small, both sometimes their own fault and sometimes not, uh, that the people in scripture faced? Let me give you some highlights or, or lowlights, if you will. Cain was murdered by his brother. That was a good start, right? Job is the poster child of loss. He lost his wealth, his health, and his children. Abraham and Sarah struggled for years, unable to bear a child. Joseph, sold into slavery by his brothers, then wrongly imprisoned. Moses was not allowed into, to enter into the promised land after he had led the people there. Naomi lost her sons, her husband. The prophet Samuel, good guy himself, his sons rebelled against God. David, a man after God's own heart, experienced multiple attempts on his life from King Saul. And even worse, he lost two of his sons, one as a baby and then Absalom, who died in battle while rebelling against his father, David. Jonah was thrown overboard, swallowed by a great fish. Daniel, Chadrach, Meshach, Abednego were taken captive by Babylon, not to mention being thrown in a firing furnace and into a lion's den. John the Baptist was beheaded. Stephen was stoned to death. Paul was shipwrecked, beaten, imprisoned, not to mention his thorn in the flesh. Oh, and don't forget Jesus, who was innocent of all wrongdoing, but suffered the fate of crucifixion. For God's people, if you read the Bible, it seems more difficult to find those who don't suffer than those who do. But even with these many varied examples in Scripture, when we face difficulty, hardship, suffering, our first thought can often be, it's not fair. Why me? If God really loved me, He wouldn't let these things happen to me. Like our suffering is somehow unique in the family of God. And I must ask... Where does this kind of thinking come from? Who says that life shouldn't be hard? The Bible, both Old and New Testament, seems to say the exact opposite. In Psalm 34, David writes, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. And in John 16, Jesus said, In the world you will have tribulation. Thanks for that promise. Scripture is clear. Life is hard. But all too often we don't get this. And so we have false expectations 
that God is in the business of making my life easy. And that brings us to Daniel chapter 10. I believe this chapter will give us insight into at least three things. First, that life is hard. Second, why life is hard. And third, and most importantly, we're not alone in the hardships that we face. Yes, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And yes, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, Jesus said, I have overcome the world. So with that assurance, let's turn to Daniel chapter 10. Here begins the concluding vision of the book. So we've had first six chapters, these vignettes, these stories, these examples of men living in exile, 7 through 12 sort of visions, and now this is a a longer vision that's going to take us through the end of the book. We'll see the details in chapter 11, and, and right, but right away, in the first verse, we're not going to read it yet, we'll get to it, uh, Daniel is told that this vision is of a great conflict. The conflict will be seen in chapter 11. Chapter 10, however, which we're going to look at today, is going to prepare us to understand the conflict in chapter 11, especially its spiritual dimension. This chapter, maybe more than any other in the Bible, uh, draws back the curtain, opens our eyes to the fact that, that as we experience conflict here on earth, there is also conflict taking place in the heavenly realm. And understanding the spiritual nature of our conflicts here on earth is essential in preparing us for the challenges, the conflicts, the suffering we experience. Understanding that the, the conflict in the uh, heavenly realms is, is important in for us to understand the conflict we face here in the physical world. So as we did uh, last week with the vision of the 77s, uh, let's begin with the context of this vision. In verse 1, Daniel writes, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar, and the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. So this vision, this word of truth, is of great conflict. And it was given to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar by the Babylonians, in the third year of Cyrus. This is approximately 536 B.C. This is three years after the vision of the 77s we looked at last week in chapter 9. Now we need the background of what's happening during this third year of Cyrus. In the first year of Cyrus, as per his decree, the first group of Jewish exiles returned to Jerusalem. So if you remember, they're taken captive, uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and many others taken out of the land by the Babylonians. Now the Persians come, they wipe out the Babylonians, and they, Cyrus, he issues a decree that they can return to the land, return to Jerusalem. But they found their life there was far from easy, smooth sailing. According to Ezra, chapters 3 and 4, which we're uh, not going to read, but I leave that to you, they rebuilt the altar of the temple, but almost immediately faced opposition from their neighbors. And this opposition, plus just the difficulties of eking out a living, caused the returned exiles to stop working on the temple for uh, 15 years. So the third year of Cyrus was a time of discouragement 
for God's people, both those who returned to Judah and those who remained in Babylon. That's the historical context of the coming vision. Now let's see how Daniel is reacting to all of this. What's Daniel's personal context? At this point in his life, uh, Daniel was a very old man in his mid-80s. Sorry for you, for you that are very old along with Daniel. No worries. It's closer to heaven, right? Amen. So whether it was because of his age or his responsibilities in the Medo-Persian Empire, if you remember from the first six chapters, he was a pretty important guy. He didn't return to Jerusalem. But he was certainly aware of, and he identified with the difficulties his fellow Jews were facing. We see this beginning in verse 2. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks on the 24th day of the first month. So that's the next verse, but it just gives us context of where we're at in time. Daniel's response was to begin the third year of Cyrus with mourning and fasting. It wasn't a total fast from all food. I mean, he was in his 80s. He had to, you know, hold on there. Daniel fasted from delicacies, no meat or wine. I tend to fast from vegetables uh, myself (laughs) and wine. I don't drink a lot of wine, but... uh, I find it helpful. No vegetables. All right, just kidding. He also abstained from any oils or lotions that made his life comfortable in the dry desert climate where he lived. So this three-week fast was Daniel's way of mourning and identifying with the difficulties and trials that face God's people who had returned to their homeland. So he's identifying with his people. Daniel understood what Paul would write to the church in Rome 500 plus years later, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Or as the NIV translates it, mourn with those who mourn. Daniel identified with his brothers and sisters as they experienced the hardships of life. And this should be an example to us. Remember, we, I mean, we've used it. Daniel's been our example throughout this book especially in the first six chapters, but I think we can gain a lot from him in this chapter as well. We are children of God. We are part of the body of Christ, his church, his church worldwide. And when one part of the family, the body, the church rejoices, we should rejoice, celebrate. But as Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, if one member suffers, all suffer together. Now we should certainly identify with suffer with those in our local body. As one of us suffers here, we should join them in their mourning, in their suffering. But Daniel demonstrates that identification with our brothers and sisters goes beyond those that are nearby. I don't think it's a stretch to say what, that, what we should, that, that we should identify with the church worldwide, especially those who experience difficulty, hardship, suffering. And to do that... The first thing we need is an awareness of what's happening in the church out there. One of the problems with Americans in general, including Christians, is we're very focused on what impacts us. Maybe that's not just Americans. Maybe it's everybody. I don't know. We focus on what's happening in our city, our state, our nation, but we don't look beyond our shores. And of course, 
We can't know everything that's happening in the body of Christ, but we can know some things. Let me suggest just two practical things right here from the beginning. Practical ways to become more aware of what's happening in the church worldwide. First, engage with at least one of our missionaries serving overseas. I think I thought about this, Brian. We should make this a new member's requirement. And then grandfather all of you in too. Engage with at least one of our missionaries. If you want to know what's happening in Japan, the Middle East, Hong Kong, Greece, Spain, North Africa, Cambodia, Malawi, or soon Nigeria. Soon, right, Sherry? Soon, all right. Send an email to one of our missionary families, our singles, serving in these places. Ask them to put you on their list to receive their prayer letter. If you need help doing this, Brian and I can help you with that. Our missionaries will give you plenty of opportunities to both rejoice and mourn with brothers and sisters in Christ who are far away. They'll share with you many of the difficulties of spreading the gospel, building the church in places where Christ and Christianity are unknown or or greatly misunderstood. And this will, even more importantly, prompt you to pray for them and even support their ministry. So first, get connected to one of our overseas missionaries. Then second, we should be aware of the persecuted church. In many parts of the world, there are those who suffer severely for identifying with Christ. The writer of Hebrews urges his readers, remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also are in the body. There's this, there's this clear, throughout Scripture, identification with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, in most cases, we can't write to uh, those, the persecuted church people personally. Maybe you can. But we can do what Daniel did. We can fast from some of the luxuries that are a normal part of our lives. And we can devote ourselves to praying for these persecuted saints in their time of desperate need. By voluntarily giving up some of the joys and pleasures that are so available to us, we can identify with those who have no real chance of ever experiencing such things. This is also good for us when we're tempted to complain about the difficulties in our lives. It reminds us to be thankful for God's mercies to us and to pray for God's people who are suffering. Fasting also helps us to, uh, gives us this wartime mentality. It helps us to keep in mind the fact that this world is not our home. And like the persecuted believers, we too are engaged in spiritual battle that rages around us at all times. Okay, we've seen and given application even to the historical and personal context of the vision. Now we turn to the character of the vision. I was amazingly able to use C's again. If you remember last week, all C's. This week, all C's. That deserves a hand. I was, uh, uh, Christina was telling me about Alistair Begg, if you guys know him. He's one of my, but he was talking to a group of preachers and he was sort of downplaying this ability to use the same letter with each point. I feel like, well, if you can't do it, Alistair, don't, you know. (laughs) If you can't pick up a thesaurus, and figure this out. Just kidding. Uh, so the character of the vision. At the end of Daniel's time of fasting, he received a, this dramatic vision. 
or at least this messenger who's going to give him this vision, uh, is a vision himself, okay? At the center of the vision is this uh, heavenly being. Beginning in verse 4, we read, On the 24th day of the first month, so this is end of his fasting time, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man, or, or one, I mean, it's male, but it could just mean a, a, a one, clothed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Ufaz under the waist. This Ufaz, probably a region famous for its gold. His body was like beryl. That's a flashing golden gemstone. His face like the appearance of lightning. His eyes like flaming torches. His arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and the sounds of his words like the sound of a multitude. That's quite a character, right? And immediately we kind of want to know, well, who is this one clothed in linen and all this stuff? Many scholars seeing the parable, the parallels, excuse me, in Ezekiel's opening vision of God, if you've read that, Ezekiel chapter 1, and the description of the glorified Christ in Revelation chapter 1, believe that this is a vision of a, the pre-incarnate Christ, okay, of the second person of the Trinity prior to his incarnation, to his coming to earth uh, as a baby, incarnating. And that may be, it may be him. In fact, I, I'm a little bit on the fence, but I tend to lean that way, just this glorious description. However... In verses 13 through, excuse me, 11 through 13, there's a couple of things that would argue against this being the, the pre-incarnate Christ. And he, let me, I'm jumping down to verse 11, which we'll get back to, but, and he, the one in linen, said to me, I have been sent to you, but the, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the kings of Persia. We'll look at these verses later. But I want us to, uh, with regards to the identity of this being, I want us to see a couple things. First, he was sent by someone. He was sent by someone else to strengthen Daniel. Now, if he's the pre-incarnate Christ, then possibly he was sent by God the Father. But on this mission, he was delayed by the prince of the kingdom of Persia. And we'll talk about him when we get to these verses. Something's delaying him until he received help from Michael, one of the chief princes or angels. So the argument against this being Christ is that Christ, son of God, would not have required help from a lesser angelic being. Therefore, to some, it seems that, that he is more likely an angelic being himself, like Gabriel and Michael, who have been mentioned. So it could be the pre-incarnate Christ, or it could be an angelic being. One thing we know for sure, this is not the Antichrist. That's a joke from last week, because some people thought that was Christ, some people the Antichrist. So anyway, we, and we also know that he's sent from God, okay? That's crucial. And even if it's an angel, we know that angels are servants and representatives of God. They reflect the image and... Uh, of the glorious God. Therefore, the description of this being sent from God, whether Christ or an angel, communicates aspects of God's nature that will be important for us to understand as we walk through this vision next week. And the first thing we see 
is God's holiness, his purity. This is symbolized in the linen clothing, which was used as priestly attire in the Old Testament, and the fine or pure gold around his waist. The prophet Habakkuk, speaking of God, says, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. God is holy. He's pure. He's righteous, different, unique, set apart from his creation. God is not like us, as he himself says, uh, the prophet Isaiah. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is holy, pure, set apart, unique creator of all things. In addition to God's holiness, we also see his glory. This vision shows us a God whose presence, even if reflected in an an angelic form, is overwhelming. He exudes brightness. I mean, everything about him is just shining forth. He reverberates sound as he speaks. It's like, I don't know, this echoing sound. His presence is so powerful that it sends Daniel to the ground and sends his companions scurrying off to cover. That's what we read beginning in verse 7. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision. But a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw the great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed. And I retained no strength. It basically went pale. Then I heard the sound of his words. And I heard the sound. Then I heard the sound of his words. And as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. So he passes out. Daniel is greatly affected by the appearance of this heavenly being. His strength leaves him. He can't stand on his feet because he's in the presence of such awesomeness. This vision of God's holiness and his glory. Now this is very different. Uh, A very different depiction of God from what we see in our culture around us. We live in a culture that if, if they believe, if people believe in God, they, they tend to be on very friendly terms with him. They tend to think, ah, well, I can sort of take him or leave him, or, you know, he's really got to do what I want him to do. He's like a mild-mannered Clark Kent, right? <laughs> Never pulling back the Superman. He's way too easygoing and kind to send anyone to hell. We've transformed God into this cosmic Mr. Rogers, eager to welcome all comers to his neighborhood. One more. He's just like Santa Claus. He may threaten to put coal in our stocking if we're bad, but we all know that's really just an empty thread. How many of you guys have ever got coal in your stocking, even when you were bad? Ultimately, the God created by our culture is just too soft to judge anyone. However, this is not the God whose attributes Daniel sees reflected in this vision. He is the God of a glorious holiness that blazes with fire. His presence is scarcely bearable, even by those who, like Daniel, have devoted their lives to serving him. Remember, Daniel's not some, uh, well, he is a sinner, but he's not some uh, wayward guy faced with this 
judge. Daniel's a follower, a believer, faithful believer. The reality of God's blazing, glorious holiness is an important truth to remember in times of trial and persecution. Satan wants us to think that obedience to God really doesn't matter very much. That it doesn't matter, uh, it doesn't make much difference whether we follow God or just give in to the demands of our culture. Life is so hard, why not just follow the easy path and go along to get along, or get along to go along? Why endure persecution for uh, the Clark Kent, Mr. Rogers, Santa Claus images of God? It wouldn't even be worth making a minor sacrifice, like giving up your favorite drink for a deity like that. However, if the God we serve is a blazing and glorious holy one and says to his people, for I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy, which he does say, by the way, that's why it's up there in Leviticus 11.44 and in other places. He says, I am holy, you be holy as well. Then obedience to him, to such a God as the scripture gives us, is not just an option for us to consider, but it's a command to devote our lives to. Furthermore, a God like this is worth leaving the comforts of Babylon for, to go and endure the difficulties of rebuilding Jerusalem. A God like this is worth struggling on through difficult times for. He's worth leaving the security of our own comfortable homes in order to go and labor for His kingdom in difficult places in this world. A God like this is even worthy of giving our life for. After all, that's exactly what He did for us. In the person of Jesus, in order to save us from our sins, He left the comfort and ease of heaven and came down into this frustrating and difficult world. He labored on through good times and bad times all the way to death on a cross. Such a God is worthy of great sacrifices. I want us to see that God's purpose in revealing himself to Daniel in this glorious manner was not to crush him, but to encourage him. God wants us to see our own weakness before him. He wants us to hit the dirt before him. So that we will not trust in ourselves, but will look to Him for our strength. As Paul says, in our weakness, as we recognize our weakness, He can be strong. He is strong. And for Daniel, we see this in verse 10. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved. What, a, what words to hear. And we hear them as well. Understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. This one sent from God lifts Daniel up by his words, by a touch. He encourages Daniel with affirmation that he's highly esteemed by God. And he tells Daniel that he's come in response to Daniel's prayers in order to give him insight and understanding. In other words, the vision that follows in chapter 11 will be one that's intended to encourage Daniel in response to his mourning, his fasting over the situation in Jerusalem. Okay? So we've seen the context, the character of the vision. Now we turn to the complication of the vision. Beginning in verse 12, 
Then he said to me, fear not. He's trembling, by the way. I've raised you up, but are you still trembling? Daniel's, you know, kind of a fear not. Okay, Daniel, settle down. Fear not, Daniel, for from the, day, the first day that you set your heart to understand and humble yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. Okay, that's good to know. From the first day of Daniel's three-week fast, God heard his words and sent this messenger. So why did why it take him three weeks to get there? Well, that's the complication. Verse 13 tells us, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. 21 days, three weeks. The messenger was being held up by the prince of the kingdom of Persia. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the king of Persia. So Michael, a chief prince or as he's called in in Jude in the New Testament, verse 9, an archangel comes to the rescue. Special type heavyweight angel, Michael. And once the messenger is released, he says to Daniel, I came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. This refers to the vision about the future of God's people that we'll look at next week in chapter 11. Now we need to ask, who is this prince of the kingdom of Persia that caused this complication? While there's debate about who the messenger is, uh, there is agreement about the identity of the prince of the kingdom of Persia. He is a, a spiritual being, a demonic figure, an evil fallen angel associated in some way with the Persian empire. Remember, the Jews are returned returning to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple, are facing great opposition. And this is all happening in what at the time was the kingdom of Persia. So from a spiritual perspective, it's very likely that this prince of this kingdom of Persia is instigating and influencing the attacks on the Jews in Jerusalem. He's an agent of Satan seeking to oppose the people and the plans and the purposes of God. And this should say something to us. We who are uh, often influenced by the naturalistic or atheistic worldview of so many in our culture, of our culture itself, even though we kind of believe in Satan and demons, right? They are in the Bible, right? We tend to discount the nature of their influence in our world and in our lives. But the Bible is very clear. Remember, we saw this in Peter a number of months ago. Peter's warning to the believers, be sober-minded, be watchful, don't get cocky, kid. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Satan is seeking your destruction. If not the destruction of your soul, which is in the hands of the Lord, he's seeking to make you utterly ineffective for the kingdom of God. Don't buy into the lie that Satan does not exist or has little influence in this world. That's what he'd like you to believe. But Paul calls him the God of this world. And as such, he has the power over the kingdoms of this world. I want you to notice also that this passage explains at least one reason why there's a delay in the fulfillment of God's promises or answers to prayer. 
a reason that is beyond our ability to see, unless we get a, a vision as well. It involves spiritual warfare in the heavenly realm. The prince of the kingdom of Persia is clearly a powerful being, powerful enough to delay God's messenger for a period of three weeks. And we need to take that satanic power seriously. We need to understand that there are forces, powerful forces at work, forces beyond our ability to see, forces seeking to thwart the purposes of God in this world and in our lives. But we also need to understand that we can't go overboard with this. What I mean is, at the same time, we need to stand firm, have faith in the promises of our sovereign God. As Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. My guess is, Paul wrote this verse of assurance to the Philippians because they were experiencing doubts about God's work in their lives. Maybe things were not happening as quickly as they had hoped. Maybe there were delays, complications in their ability to overcome the sins that so easily beset them. Maybe they weren't growing in maturity like they thought they should. And Daniel 10 is saying that at least one reason for those complications could be the enemy's influence. His interference. Daniel 10 teaches us that yes, the enemy may cause delays, but it also affirms that in the end, God's purpose will be accomplished. When the chief prince, Angel Michael, uh, showed up, comes to help, the one who spoke to Daniel was finally able to complete the journey and bring the message of encouragement. And my guess is, my belief, even in God's sovereign plan, there was something going on in that three weeks that Daniel needed to experience. So God even works through the interference of our enemies. Ultimately, Satan's interference cannot thwart God's purpose or harm God's people. Daniel, however, didn't take the news of this heavenly conflict well. Beginning in verse 15, we read, when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Whether this is an additional, maybe another angel shows up, or the same being who, who'd been given Daniel the message isn't clear. But what is clear is that in Daniel's distress, God sends someone to minister to him. Then I, Daniel, opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him, who stood before me, O oh my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? Now, For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. So Daniel is again, he's struggling. He's struggling with his vision, with all he's seen, with what he's heard. Are you kidding me? There's, there's these spiritual forces at work as well. He's distressed by the magnitude of this power that are standing against God's people. He's not just facing. He thought, well, okay, you know, these people in the land that were causing trouble, as you'll read in Ezra, maybe we can overcome them. But he, they're not just facing human opposition, but opposition on the part of powerful spiritual beings in the heavenly realms. This explains why the progress of the rebuilding of the city was so slow. 
Behind the difficulties faced in Jerusalem was the satanic prince of the kingdom of Persia. But God, through his servant, continues to respond. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, again, that's important, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Daniel, in his great weakness, received strength from the Lord in order to continue to hear, to see the vision. And what he hears is that this spiritual struggle would not soon be over. Beginning of verse 20, we read, Then he said, Do you not, excuse me, do you know why I've come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. The angel, uh, would soon return to fight again against this prince of Persia who's causing trouble, opposing the people of God, influencing those in the, uh, the earthly realm. And after, and after that, he would fight against the prince of Greece, the next world power to arise. If you've been following with this, there's the Medo-Persian Empire, and then Alexander the Great's going to come and set up the, wipe them out, or conquer them and set up the Grecian empire. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth, he continues. Most likely this uh, reference, this is a reference to the sovereign plan that God has for Israel and for the world. And this prepares us for what's coming in chapter 11. There's none who contends by my side against these except Michael. So he's going back and Michael's going to be with him, your prince. And as for me... So Michael must have some relation to the people of Israel, I guess. As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. So Darius the Mede, just so we're clear, you got Cyrus. Cyrus is the big guy, conquering guy. He appointed Darius the Mede to be over a certain region, Babylon, in fact, the the region. So the, the first year of Darius, same as the first year of Cyrus. Okay, so this reinforces the fact that this spiritual conflict has been going on for some time, at least several years since the first year of Darius, the first year of Cyrus, when uh, the, the decree went forth and the Israelites be, began returning to Jerusalem. Both the messenger and Michael have been engaged in this spiritual heavenly conflict for a number of years and will continue to engage when the Greeks enter the fray. There is a long and lasting spiritual conflict going on. And we shouldn't think that since Persia and Greece are ancient history, these evil spiritual beings are now just sitting around doing nothing, resting on their laurels. The battle continues. These same or same kind of satanic forces continue to oppose God and God's people, God's church. Time and time again, however, though the church, like Daniel, is bowed to the ground and may feel abandoned and alone, it is not destroyed because God continues to support and sustain it through the strengthening ministry of his own angels. As Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. Just like Daniel, we are not alone in our conflict. And though the promises of God seem slow in being fulfilled, 
God's decrees in his book of truth are the ultimate determiner of all future realities. We've seen that in the, we, we talked about this. God doesn't see the future. God controls the future. Therefore, as we face difficulties in this life, as we understand the spiritual nature of these difficulties, we need to see the root cause is not the people involved. We like to blame people. The husband or wife that's being so unreasonable, the employee or employer that seems so difficult, or the rebellious child who's making your life miserable. The root cause is not even our own bad habits, our sins that frustrate us so greatly. Rather, it's the underlying spiritual battle in which we're engaged against powerful forces in the heavenly realms. Daniel 10 is really an illustration of the truth given by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's who this prince was. That's who we wrestle against. That's what Daniel saw, and it rightly drove him to the ground. And so I ask you, does this uh, supernatural struggle sound frightening? Does it sound intimidating? It's supposed to. God wants us to understand that life isn't a bowl of cherries, it's a battleground. And the devil and his forces are far too powerful for us to take on in our own strength. But God says, you need not make the attempt. Because the might and power of the blazing, glorious God who created heaven and earth will fight on your behalf. His victory may not be on your timetable or mine, it may be slow in coming, but it will not be denied. As the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us as he loved Daniel. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the ultimate truth that we have to hold on to as we face uh, the demonic difficulties, the demonically influenced difficulties of this life. So the curtain's been pulled back. Through Daniel, we've seen uh, that connected to our earthly struggles, there's a heavenly spiritual battle waging. And the question comes, so, so how, or, or how do we or can we engage in this battle? I mean, the heavenly warriors are, are so much more powerful than we are. What could we possibly, what part could we possibly play in this conflict? And the answer is right there in Daniel chapter 10. Remember what triggered the vision in the first place? Anybody? Prayer. Prayer. Daniel prayed. When we pray, we who are weak, trembling human beings engage in heavenly conflict. That's why when Paul urged the Ephesians in chapter 6 to prepare for spiritual conflict, and I would just uh, admonish, advise, encourage you to even look over that chapter again, chapter 6, he, 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 he 
he urges you to prepare for spiritual conflict by putting on this spiritual armor. He ends by urging them, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. In the face of overwhelming situations, unbearable trials, and frustrating difficulties, what can we do? What should we do? And it's not like, uh, oh, the only thing I can do is prayer. Pray. It's what we're called to do. However, despite Paul's urging to pray always with all kinds of prayers and requests, we tend to pray rarely with small kinds of requests. Our prayers are often limited by small imaginations, little faith. We don't, we don't understand the big picture, the heavenly conflict that's reflected in our weak prayers. We don't pray for big things because we don't really believe in our heart of hearts that God can do them. This is especially true during those difficult and discouraging times when life is hard and spiritual progress seems slow. We pray for small sinners to become Christians, but not big sinners. We pray for victory over small sins in our lives while we leave those large, ingrained sinful habits untouched. We may pray for change or help in our personal situation, but not in our city, our state, our country, our world. We need to wake up to the reality of who God is. He's holy, holy, holy. He's unstoppable. He's glorious. He's blazing in fire. He's great and mighty with legions of angels at His beck and call. He causes kingdoms to rise and kingdoms to fall. He controls the events of world history, as we'll see in Daniel 9, as we've seen in previous chapters. He loves His people. He loves you and me with an everlasting love. And this great God, this is a mystery to me, but in His great wisdom, chooses to work to call forth angels, to send out messengers, in response to the prayers of his people. I don't know how it works. God is sovereign and God calls his people to pray. I don't understand it, but I don't have to. You don't have to. You just have to do it. In obedience, you in your personal life and we corporately, we go to prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for revealing this to us, Father for giving us your word that, that pulls back this curtain and gives us this vision that we might understand there are things going on all the time in the spiritual realm, Father. Help us to understand that, to see that, to know that, and allow it to drive us to our knees. Lord, to stop trying to convince that person and begin to pray against the evil that's influencing that person. Lord, give us a, a vision for what you're doing in our lives, in this world, and help us to join you in prayer. Lord, help us to, uh, to respond to your call to pray. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right, well, we're going to close this out with one last song as we uh, sing praises. So if you'd like to stand with me one last time. <laughs>